0: Well, you guys can be seated, and if you are new with us, or you've just not been with us for a few weeks, so you don't know where we're at, we are going to be in Deuteronomy 17 this week. We've got a couple of verses at the very end of 16 that we're going to look at, and then we're going to look at Deuteronomy 17. And as we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy, we've seen God leading His people to go from a ragtag group of people to becoming a nation. They're in the process of entering in and having their own land, and God's been giving them instructions on how to live as God's people, how they should be different, how they should be set apart. And we're looking at some very practical things, some very practical instructions that God has given to his people as of the last few weeks. But this week and next week, we're going to be looking at this little mini-series that Moses built into the book of Deuteronomy for us that talks about leadership. One of my favorite movies of all time, one of my favorite lines in that movie is, the movie is Remember the Titans. And in the movie Remember the Titans, you see a, a story of two schools that were once segregated being brought together and how the football team had to deal with that. And there's all kinds of conflict and all kinds of fighting that happens inside of the movie, but, but they get to a point where there's really, there's, there's a void of leadership and one captain... Julius looks at the other one uh, from one team to the other team that's all trying to come together and he says, attitude reflect leadership, captain. What he's saying is the way that we work as a team is going to be dependent on the way that we lead as the captains. Well, we see that same thing to be true in the government. We see that same thing to be true in the church, in any organization, in the family The way that we work is dependent on the leadership and the way that those leaders lead. A lot of space is given in the prophetic books in the Old Testament to denounce the sins of the leaders, to point out how the leaders had failed and how they had sinned. If you're familiar with the Gospels at all, the story of how Jesus spent time ministering on the earth, you'll know that Jesus kind of spoke harshly of the religious leaders that were in place during the time that he walked the earth. Because they had taken what God had told them and they had twisted it around for their own purposes. So as we look at what Moses has to say in the book of Deuteronomy on leadership, we're going to start this week by looking at two different offices. The first one, Pastor Dave just briefly touched on last week, talking about judges. And we're going to talk about judges and kings this week, and then we're going to talk about priests and prophets next week. So... Just to give us a little bit of context for our verses this week, I'm going to start by reading the last three verses from Pastor Dave's message from last week. So we're going to look at Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20. Starting in verse 18, it says, You shall appoint for yourselves judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice, you shall not be partial, and you shall not take a bribe. For the bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Last week, what we were looking at concluded by talking about the fact that Israel would appoint judges and that these judges would be fair people. They would be just people. They would stand for justice and only justice. And talks about how they shouldn't take a bribe, about how they should, should stand for what was fair. Well, our passage that we're going to look at today continues that idea, but before it continues that idea, we see this little section that kind of gets dropped in the middle that seems like it doesn't necessarily fit as we're looking at leaders. We have three verses here that remind us of the things that God has prohibited and the way that God has forbidden certain forms of worship. <clears throat> But what we see here is something that happens a lot in the Old Testament, something that happens a lot in the nation of Israel, and really it it happens for us on a regular basis too because what we see is this passage kind of intermingles the sacred and the secular. It talks about how the nation should lead and how the government should be set up and how justice should be executed, but it also talks about how we should worship how we should look to the Lord as our leader, how we should make sure that our eyes are fixed on Him, that our affections are fixed on Him. And we might look at those, and and at first glance we see what looks like two separate things, but in reality, they're codependent things, aren't they? In order for us to function correctly in the organizations that we work in, in order for us to function correctly as a church, in order for us to function correctly as a country... That's most successful when it's done with God's virtues in mind. It's most successful when done with the way that God commands his people to live, when those things are at the forefront of who we are. So, really, the sacred and the secular are intermingled in every aspect of our life. But we see here two prohibitions that have already been brought up in this section of Deuteronomy. We're going to see. Moses talk about the people not embracing the religious practices of idols, and we're going to see them talk about offering improper sacrifices. So let's look at those three verses, Deuteronomy 16, 21 through verse 1 of the next chapter. It says, You shall not plant for yourself an asherah of any kind of tree beside the altar of the Lord your God, which you shall make for yourself. You shall not set up for yourself a sacred pillar, which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep, which has a blemish of any, or any defect, for that is a detestable thing to the Lord your God. First, Moses addresses Asherah poles and pillars, stones that were set up. Both of those symbols were symbols that were significant in idol worship that was happening in the land of Canaan, in the land where God's people, the Israelites, were getting ready to go in and to possess. And what we see here is a reminder of, of something that we talked about in great detail a few weeks ago. God won't compete for your affections. God deserves all of our affections. He deserves that we should obey in the right way. And it's not okay for us to just kind of take a little bit from over here and take a little bit from over here and just kind of make for ourselves whatever feels right for us. God tells us how we should live. God tells us how we should worship, and he takes this seriously. Clearly, in the first few thousand years, we'll just ballpark here, the nation of Israel struggled a little bit with disobedience. It's kind of an understatement. They struggled a lot with disobedience. They struggled a lot with finding the idolatry that existed in foreign nations and nations that they would find themselves intermarrying with when they disobeyed God, find themselves not completely removing the influences like God would tell them to. They would fall into these places where they would adopt idolatry and, and, and the, the ways that other cultures would worship. And they would wander off into sin time and time and time again. So it was a little bit of a weakness for them. And as we also have weaknesses, it's important for us to be reminded. So Moses seemingly just kind of drops this one in here. Hey, don't forget, we worship God the way he tells us to, not the way that other people may be worshiping their false gods. It's important for us to realize that in areas of vulnerability, places where we are prone to fall and prone to have issues, it's important for us to be reminded time and time and time again and to be held accountable for our obedience. The second wrong practice that Moses talks about here is bringing blemished offerings. Verse 1 in chapter 17, he says, "'You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect, whatever.'" For this is an abomination to the Lord. God deserves our best. As simply as we can put it, God deserves our best. And if you want more information or want us to talk about that more, we don't have time today, but we talked about it a few weeks ago. So uh, go to trcclive.org, click on uh, our past sermons, and our team does a great job of uploading the podcasts every single week. You can go back and check it out as we looked at that from Deuteronomy 15 talks in great detail about that. Let's look at verses 2 through 7 now. What we see here is we return to this issue of justice and we see God and and Moses giving commands for those who break the covenant. Moses describes how they're supposed to deal with people who break the covenant by worshiping other gods. Starting in verse 2, it says, If there is found in your midst in any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you, A man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly hosts which I have not commanded. And if it is told you and you have heard of it, then you shall inquire thoroughly. Behold, if it is true and the thing certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed. You shall bring them to your gates, that is. The man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. And so you shall purge this evil from your midst. We see a couple of different things in these verses that are significant for us to pause with. The first thing we see is that breaking the covenant is evil. God has told his people how they are supposed to worship. He has told his people who they are supposed to worship. You guys remember from Deuteronomy chapter 6, we saw that great passage that talks about how God's people are to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their strength. Everything that's within us belongs to the the Lord. Everything that's within us belongs to him, and he deserves every bit of what we have to offer. And so committing religious sins like the one here that it's talked about, worshiping in the wrong way, worshiping the wrong God, these are serious capital offenses. But we also are reminded, as we've talked about for the last several weeks, as we've looked at very specific laws that God gave to his people in Israel, that the world that they lived in, was different than the world that we live in. That they were living in a theocracy, which is our fancy word of saying God was their king. They didn't have a king. They didn't have another government. They didn't have someone else that they looked to. They looked to God. They looked to him, and he was in charge. But we live in a different era. We live in a, a country with a secular government now. God is not the God of our land anymore. All of the people in leadership are not people that follow the Lord anymore we live in a different place so God's people are no longer a set nation but we've been scattered throughout the world God's people live in the church but that church exists in all different countries around the world speaks all different languages around the world we exist in all of the corners of creation So when we look at things and we see things in the Old Testament, when we see these prescriptions in Deuteronomy and in other Old Testament law places, I'll remind us again of what we've talked about before. The applications are still important, but they may not look exactly the same. What we see is we can't just carbon copy things out of there and say, all right, well, it says if someone worships someone else, we get to throw rocks at them. We're not leaving here and throwing rocks at people that have different beliefs than us today. But what we do see is we see principles. We see things that, that were true of God then and are true of God now. Worship is to be done in the right way. God is jealous and deserves all of our affections. <clears throat> and so as we look at this, what we see when we see the laws and the things that are explained to the nation of Israel, the first place for us to look for application is not our country, but is inside of the family of God, is inside of the church. It's it's here that we should start to see these principles, these things come to reality. So as we look at this, it's important for us to realize, to acknowledge, to pause at this point And to acknowledge, just like Moses did in Deuteronomy 17, that idolatry is a serious problem. That loving other things more than we love God is a serious sin issue. And it's something that's that's not something that we can just shrug. yeah, it's the world we live in. Anything, whether it's another religion or whether it's something that, that could be a good thing, that is put in the wrong position of priority in our life, that is idolatry, and that's something that the church should take seriously. Whether that thing would be comfort, whether it would be success, whether it would be uh, financial uh, accumulation for yourself, whatever that thing is, if you put that thing in the position of utmost importance in your life, It's a sin and it needs to be dealt with in the same way, in the same severity that idolatry is dealt with in Deuteronomy. So first we see that breaking the covenant is evil. And the second thing that we see in this little chunk of verses is the importance of a careful and serious investigation when sin creeps in. I think we live in a world right now where Christians often, if we hear conversation of a fellow Christian, a fellow family member struggling with sin being sucked into sinful practice, we kind of have this attitude where we step back, we throw our hands up, and we go, hey, it's not my job. That, that's between them and God. That's not for me to, who am I to judge? And we just kind of shrug our shoulders and stick our fingers in our ears and hope that, that we don't have any sort of responsibility with that. But that approach is not a biblical one. That approach is not one that reflects a good understanding of what Scripture has to say about the matter. Because we see here in Deuteronomy 17, we look at verse 4. It says, And it is told to you, and you hear of it. Then you shall inquire diligently. When sin happens and you hear about it, the first thing we have to do is investigate and find out whether or not what we heard is true. Because we would all admit and realize we know sometimes what we hear isn't necessarily accurate, right? You shall inquire diligently, and if that result yields that it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, the offending person is to be punished. So should we act that way today? Should we take the responsibility like the nation of Israel did? Is it my responsibility to be in charge of what my brother or sister may or may not be doing? Yes, absolutely. And... We could spend the whole time talking about this, but uh, we don't have time for that. So, what we're going to do, we're going to look at a few different places what the Old Testament has to say about it in Deuteronomy 17. We're also going to look at a couple of different places in the New Testament. What does the New Testament say about this topic? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's what my notes have next. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, it, it talks about this. It says, if your brother sins, go and show him his faults in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We talked about this this topic of discipline inside of the family, inside of the church, in our study of Thessalonians. I wasn't here for long. I came kind of right at the end of 2 Thessalonians as we were studying, but 2 Thessalonians talks about that. I shared with you the, from the last message, and, and I remember one of Pastor Mark's last messages that he shared here was talking about what would it look like if the church took sin seriously? What would it look like if we really understood and, and cared about the things that God cares about? How would we look different? How would things change here at the church? How would things change inside of the family? How would our relationships look different? We see it all over Scripture, all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. God's people should take God's commands seriously. But what is the warning that we see in Matthew 18? What is the warning that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 17? And how do those warnings apply to us today? Deuteronomy 17, verses 5 and 6, it talks about how we should go to great lengths to make sure that those who are accused of guilt are actually guilty. Verse 5 and 6, it says, Then you shall bring out the man or the woman who has done this evil deed to your gates. That is, the man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The city gate as it talks about here in these verses, that was the, the public square. It was the public forum. It was the place where business often took place and, and things happened. So for it to talk about bringing that person out to the city gates, it implies that there was a, a public trial that was expected. It wasn't just a witch hunt where we heard a rumor of something and to make sure that it doesn't ever happen, we're just going to and, and take care of the person and, and kill them and, and never look back. There is no place in the Bible and there is no place in God's church for witch hunts, for uh, half-hearted, half-executed uh, processes where we, we hear of something and we go, well, I guess they're guilty, and we start wagging our finger and, and we execute justice. There is no place for secretly tried and condemned actions without sufficient evidence. We saw that play out really ugly in the Gospels when the religious leaders kind of half-heartedly threw together a trial and Jesus was tried at night. Jesus was tried in a way that was not consistent with what God has commanded for his people to do because the religious leaders wanted him killed. The process is so serious that it talks about in verse 7, the hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Talks about how the witness has to take a lead in the execution of the criminal. If sin has been committed, if a person steps forward and and has to be witness to, yes, I saw this and I can confirm that this happened. Being a witness was an ultimate, it was an incredible responsibility. If a witness made an accusation, they also had to be responsible for inflicting the punishment. It wasn't something that they got to just kind of toss an accusation out there and hide behind anonymity. Hey, did you hear what so-and-so did? We live in that world today, though, don't we? We live in the world where people like to point fingers and, 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 and toss things out there with no willingness to put their name on it. People will live behind a computer screen or people will live behind the anonymity of just tossing something out there with with no willingness to to own it. No willingness to to take seriously their responsibility in the whole process. Christians must be committed to simply go beyond making accusations. Our, Our job as Christians, as members of the family, is not to make accusations. It's as Matthew 18 talked about, it's to to seek to gain our brother. The goal is not just punishment. We don't just go through this process so that someone will be ashamed, so that someone will be, will be pointed at and wagged at and punished. We go through this process so that their actions may be changed. We go through this process because we love them enough that, that we want to see them brought back into the family. 1 Timothy chapter 5 talks about this same idea. It says in verses 19 and 20, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin, though, rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. We talk about the church and we talk about how we're a family. We talk about that a lot here at The Rock. We talk about how we're, we're all in this together, but there's a couple of different elements that go into being a part of a family. We just got to experience the fun part of being a part of a family. Sitting down together and, and having breakfast together, and when things are good, when everyone's happy, when things are taken care of, it's, it's wonderful to be a part of a family. I'm sure you have memories with your family or with this church family of spending time laughing together and celebrating and enjoying each other's company That's a great part of being a family. But what about the other responsibilities? What about when someone's hurting inside of the family? What about when someone gets sick inside of the family? Part of being a family means that when things are good, we're there for people. But it also means that when things get difficult, we're there for them as well. Something that we've been looking at and and developing for the last few weeks, we've realized as a church that we don't, have anybody that's really prepared to take care of each other well. We've got people that love each other and want to help, but we don't really have anything established with that right now. So we're in the process of of trying to bring together a team, a a care team is what I call it, where people in our church will be prepared and and ready and pointed in the right direction of people when, when pain comes to the family. When we have a spouse or a loved one that passes away, we want to have people who are ready to come alongside of, of the family and love them and, and be there for them. When we have someone who gets injured and can't make dinner for a while, we want to have people who are prepared to come alongside of them and love them and help them through that time. When we have people who are just discouraged and and, and having a hard time with what's going on in their life, we want to have people who are are prepared and are looking for opportunities to encourage, to to come alongside of someone, to write a note, to take 10 minutes and make a phone call and just love each other well. See, being part of a family is, it happens when things are good, but it also happens when things are, are difficult. That's part of being a family. But there's also another responsibility of being a part of a family. What about when someone's, making a mistake? What about when someone needs to be corrected? See, that's part of being a family too. In my family at my house, correction is a regular, daily, minute-by-minute part of living with four kids. Don't do that. Don't touch that. Don't climb on that. Oliver, stop that. I'll sell out which one of my kids hears it more than the rest of them. It's the three-year-old. It's always the three-year-old. Part of being in the family means correction sometimes has to take place. We don't get to just ignore the problem when it exists because for me to be a loving parent means I don't just let my kids run around and do whatever they want to. Sometimes it's dangerous for them. I wouldn't be a good and loving parent if I just let my kids run around sticking sharp things into sockets and see what happens. (laughs) That'd be dangerous. So the loving thing for me to do is to correct that, even if they're not happy with it when it happens. In the same way for us, church, the loving thing for us to do sometimes for our brother, for our sister, for the person that that falls into error, that falls into sin, is not to just step back and say, I don't want to upset them. Sometimes the, the most loving thing for us to do is to come alongside of them and to put our arm around them and to correct them not just with the goal of, of wagging our finger and, and bringing shame on them or bringing punishment on them, but to seek to correct them, to seek that, that ultimately they would, they would be one, as a brother talks about in Matthew 18. So let's look at that Matthew 18 process. Very simply and very practically, this is how this looks in the church. This is how this should look in our life. If a brother sins against you, it says in Matthew 18, you better go talk to them first. Don't talk to somebody else. Don't talk to your spouse about it. Don't talk to your friend about it. Don't come talk to the the pastor or the elder or the Bible study leader or anybody else about it. If your brother sins against you or if you hear of a sin being committed by your brother, the first thing that you're expected to do is go talk to that person. Have you talked to them about it? If you have and they refuse to hear your correction, they, they refuse to hear your admonition you take one or two others with you so that there won't be any he said, she said, there won't be any confusion about it, that, that everything that's being shared can be confirmed and that hopefully by bringing a person or two with you, ultimately, what's the goal it talks about? It talks about the goal would be that, that you would win your brother, that their actions would change so that they would live in the way that God wants them to live, that they would live in God's best for them. Finally, if they still refuse That is the point where you bring it to the leaders of the church, where you bring it to the church, and ultimately we go about that process of discipline. It's not something that we just take lightly. It's not something that we just half-heartedly run into. It talks about how it's serious, about how God's people should not just rush to judgment in Deuteronomy 17 as it talks about. Don't just rush to judgment. We don't just execute the person based on hearsay, on the evidence of one witness. We go through this process and we go about it the right way. We seek restoration. We seek what's right, not just what's easy or what's convenient. And let me pause here just before we move on from this and remind us and challenge us and challenge myself as as a leader, because this is difficult for all of us sometimes. We have to take sin seriously. And when a person inside of the family is, is practicing sin and needs to be called to repentance, it's important for us to take that seriously. But on the same level, it's also important for us to trust the way that God tells us to do it, because... This person is sinning because they're not obeying what God's telling them to do. But if we go about confronting it or if we go about talking about it and gossiping about it in the wrong way, guys, we're just as sinful as the person that's committing the sin. The way for us to deal with stuff inside of the church is to deal with it the way that God tells us to deal with it. If your brother sins against you, it doesn't say go to... The elders. It doesn't say go to your spouse. It doesn't say go to a friend. It says what? Go to that person. If we trust that God's way is best, if we trust that, that dealing with sin is important in our church, we have to deal with our own sin as well. Because my sin, my temptation in that situation would be it's way easier to just talk about it to someone else than it is to go look a brother or a sister in the eye and say, I love you enough that we're going to have a hard conversation. It's, it's hard. It's scary. It's really uncomfortable for everyone involved when you have to go have that conversation. But it's God's best. And if we trust that what God says is right, we have to obey and do what God says we should do. That's it. I'm done with that topic. All right, moving on. Let's look at verses 8 through 13. as It talks about having respect for the decision that the leaders have made. In an exceptionally difficult case, they had a separate process where people would bring their case before a special judge to be heard. So that's what we're going to see in verses 8 through 13. If any case is too difficult for you to decide between one kind of homicide or another, between one kind of lawsuit or another, between one kind of assault or another being cases of dispute in your courts, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So you shall come to the Levitical priest or the judge who is in office in those days. You shall inquire of them, and they will declare to you the verdict in the case. And you shall do according to the terms of the verdict which they declare to you from that place which the Lord chooses. And you shall be careful to observe according to all that they teach you. According to the terms of the law which they teach you, and according to the verdict which they tell you, you shall do. Do not turn aside from the word which they declare to you, to the right or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not listening to the priest, who stands there to serve the Lord your God, nor to the judge, that man shall die, and thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Then all of the people will hear and be afraid, and you will not act presumptuously again application of this process seems pretty straightforward. Application of this process, it's very clear if there's a case that they can't figure out how to deal with or can't resolve amongst themselves, there was leadership, there was a judge, there was a person that they could go and take their case to. But there's something that's important for us here to notice as well. If a verdict was not carried out, if a person that was put in a position of leadership by the Lord, that judge, it talks about how that the, the judge was there to serve the Lord their God. And when someone comes and brings their case to them and hears what the judge has to say, it's important that we obey what that person has to say. talks about how if a verdict was not carried out, that is similar to challenging the, the, the Constitution, challenging the leadership of the country. It was a serious crime. It was a capital offense. It was something that deserved to be punished and to be punished by death. The person who refuses to obey the verdict was to be severely punished. Verse 12, it says, The man who acts presumptuously by not listening to the priest who stands to serve the Lord your God, nor to the judge, that man shall die. The root of that word that's translated presumptuously, it means to boil up. It means that they would have an angry rejection of the ruling that was given by the judge. I'm reminded of instances at my house where we've got four kids and the older two especially are getting really good at realizing which parent they go and ask sometimes it it changes the answer that they get on certain things they'll come to me and ask hey can I have a donut before dinner if i say no what do they do next mom can i go have can, can i have a donut they They get an answer that they don't like, and so they run off and they they try to, they parent shop is what they do. They shop for the answer that they want, and then if they get what they want, then they feel like they won. Well, A, we're getting smarter than them, slowly but surely. Did you ask your mom yet? What'd mom say? But what we see there is something that, guys, we do that same thing as adults sometimes too. We look for feedback. We look for someone to, to give us the answer that we want. We know what we want to do in a situation, and so we talk to our friends or we talk to people that, that ultimately we, we think they'll give us the answer we want to hear. Not necessarily the right answer, but the one that we, that we want. And Romans 13 talks very clearly, the first few verses. It talks about how all authority that exists exists Every bit of authority that exists in the world, it didn't happen by accident, they're put there by God. God allows and and puts people in positions of authority, and unless that person of authority in our life is telling us to explicitly disobey something God has told us to, we're supposed to trust what that person has to say. We're supposed to trust what that leader has to say. So I don't care if you don't like what your boss has told you at work. They're in the position of authority over you, and, and God put them in that position of authority over you. And God's desire for you or God's desire for me is to respect the people that God has put in authority over us. It means that we don't just boil up with anger like this is talking about, act presumptuously. We don't just get upset about something that didn't go our way and run off and do what we want to anyways. We live in a way that respects the people that God has put in positions over us that happens in churches that happens in social clubs that happens in families that happens in every sphere of life people will hear something that they don't want to hear they'll get upset about it and instead of trusting and respecting that God has put this person here and I should trust what they have to say we run off and we go do what we want what we think is best beware Finally, let's look at the way Moses addresses the king. There's two different sections that talk about things that that the king needed to know. First, we see dangers that, that are warnings for the king in verses 14 through 17. Let's look at those quickly. It says, When you enter into the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses." one from among your countrymen. You shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. We see here in this section God allows something to happen, but it's not God's best. When we look at, as this process of Israel ultimately demands a king, we want a king like all the other nations have a king. We want a, a human to lead us. We, won't, we don't want to just serve God. And like, that's, that's weird. We need somebody to sit on the throne. And so Israel, in that desire, in that attitude, they demanded a king and God allowed them to have a king. But as this talks about, as it talks about in 1 Samuel as we see that happen, we see just because God allowed it to happen doesn't mean that it was God's best. Just because it was allowed to happen doesn't mean that it was the best thing for them. And so God allows in this section. It's permissive rather than prescriptive. But God willingly grants the request for a king. And then it proceeds to give three warnings for these kings. As leaders, be careful of this and of this and of that. Every king that was chosen by God, every person of leadership, ultimately, as we look at these things, I would make an argument that that all of us are tempted by these things that it talked about here in these verses. It talks about horses, it talks about wives, and it talks about silver and gold. Horses. What in the world is it talking about? Horses. Horses were used in military conquest during that time. Horses were a symbol of power person with the most horses and the most weapons and the most men usually won the fight. So when it talks about you shall not multiply horses for yourself, what it's saying is be careful of trying to accumulate power for yourself. Be careful of trying to build up enough strength that in your own power you can do whatever you want. David said in Psalm 20, Some boast in chariots, some boast in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. As God's people, our hope is not in our own strength. Our hope is not in the, the power that we've amassed. It's in the name of the Lord our God. second thing it warns us about is wives. Moses says, be careful that a king should not take many wives. This is another area where just because something was allowed to happen, it doesn't mean that it was God's best. I can't answer the question well why God allowed Kings to have multiple wives because it's clearly not what God intended for relationships. It talks about in the Old Testament, it talks about in the New Testament, all throughout Scripture. But it cautions them be careful of seeking power, be careful of seeking wives. Power. We're mostly grown ups in here. We'll just say uh, seeking temporary happiness. Seeking fleeting things that seem to bring us pleasure for a little while, but ultimately leave us empty. They're they're not what God's best is for us. Be careful of seeking power. Be careful of seeking relationships that that will bring you temporary happiness. It says, be careful of silver and gold. Be careful of wealth. King gives another caution. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. If a king accumulates for himself enough power, enough women, and enough money, you know what that attitude is probably going to be? Look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at how great I am. I don't need anybody else or anything else. I'm enough on my own. Look at how great I am. Is that the attitude of someone that's acknowledging that God is ultimately in control? That in the snap of his fingers, it could all be gone? Everything that we have comes from God. Everything that we are should be focused on Him and what He wants for us and His best for us. Power, sex, and money. Those aren't temptations that that exist in the world today, are they? So what are the prescriptions for the king? How does God caution these leaders how do we avoid those things? How do we deal with those things? Let's look at the last three verses we have. It says, Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, that he may not turn aside from his commandment, to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in, this, in his kingdom in the midst of Israel, after giving these three warnings for the king, Moses gives two positive things that the kings must do: first one, stay close to the Word of God it said that he should make for himself a copy of the scroll that it was important for him to have the Word of God nearby and close to him, and that he should read it daily, that he should be committed to it that that this word would keep him from all of those traps, all of those dangers, all of those sinful troubles. The Bible is to be a companion of the leader. The Bible is to be a companion of the Christian. A preacher years ago said it and it stuck with me. Sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. Guys, there's a reason why we talk about how important this book should be to us, and it's not something that we, we we hurry up and find it on Sunday morning and we wipe the dust off of it from the week before so that it looks like we used it this week, and we bring it to church with us and go, look at me, I've got my Bible. Every moment of every day, there's sinfulness that lives inside of us. There's sinfulness that lives inside of us, and and if we're not careful to fight against that, it, it comes out in our lives. The way that we fight against it is by staying so close to God that, that there's no place for selfishness. There's no place for the, the love of power, the love of uh, happiness, the love of, of, of fleeting things that God tells us to avoid. Those things don't matter when we're fixed with our eyes on this book. The other thing that it talks about here in verse 20, it talks about remaining humble and seeking accountability. Verse 20, it says, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left. When we think we've got it all figured out, when we think we've got all the answers, when we think, oh, that... That'll never happen to me. Be careful. Be careful because pride comes before the fall. Because the reality is that that people, you hear stories about pastors, about world leaders, about husbands and wives and people who would go and would get caught in just terrible, sinful situations. And you know how it happens most of the time? Most of the time they'll say, I never thought it could happen to me. I never thought I would be the person who went and, and fell into this trap. That would never happen to me. Guys, it can happen to any of us. Sin can corrupt even the best person if we're trying to do it in our own power. The solution for the king, as it's talking about here in our passage, and the solution for me and the solution for you is twofold. First one, stay close to the Lord. Stay committed to his word. Stay entrenched that, that, that we look to it and we read it and we care what it says and we change ourselves based on what it says every moment of every day. And the other thing that's important for us is to have people to, to not be above our countrymen, to not be so puffed up with, with the idea that I've got this. I, I, I don't need any help. That we don't have people that come alongside of us. That as it talked about earlier in this passage, can, can come up and can put their arm around us and say, hey, I'm concerned for you. I see this in your life and I notice that this is going on and it doesn't line up with the way that God's children are supposed to act. We need to love God's word and allow it to shape us. But we also need to have brothers and sisters, family members, people who we give the right to come alongside of us and say, Hey, danger, warning, stop it. So that ultimately we might be able to chase after God more effectively together. I'm going to invite the worship team to make their way up here. As we finish our service, uh, don't forget couple of different things. First, we've got our prayer team that'll be up here at the front after the service is over. If anything resonated with you and you just want to talk to the Lord and seek his help, come talk to our prayer team. The other reminder, so we've got a family meeting in a few minutes. So go grab your kids, move them to the child care that's going to be down here in 120 and stick around as we talk a little bit about the things that are important to us as a church and where we're headed moving forward. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that, God, that it speaks to exactly what we need, exactly when we need it, all the time. We know that's not by accident. God, we know that's something that doesn't happen by chance. But the word of God that the scripture is living and breathing and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God, we pray that your word would change us on a regular basis. God, that we would daily submit ourselves to you and to what your word has to say into our lives. God, speak into our lives. Change us and give us people that would would come alongside of us and love us enough to put their arm around us and say, like Matthew 18 talks about, I see sin, but I want to walk alongside of you and, and help you change that. God, help us to be people who will have the difficult conversations, who will, God, who will trust you enough to have the hard conversation. God, through your spirit, through the power of your word, change us and make us more into the people that you want us to be. We need you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.